When I was building the technology, especially when I was seeing the link between AI and healthcare and also other industry, it is so easy for me to understand people from the other side because as a small business owner for a dry cleaner shop, everything you're trained on is to understand your customers and make sure they're happy. And it really made me understand the struggle of someone as an immigrant, that's myself, as well as the receiving end of a product or service, the, the, the customers and users. So when I was working in healthcare with AI or at Google, it was second nature to me to try to ground technology into human perspective. And besides, I live in Silicon Valley. I can tell people I had a startup when I was 19 and it was a dry cleaning <laughs> shop. <laughs> Welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. My guest this week is Dr. Fei-Fei Li, the computer scientist and Stanford University professor. She's known for her foundational contributions to the field of artificial intelligence, focusing on computer vision and human-centered AI. Her new book is The Worlds I See, Curiosity, Exploration, and Discovery at the Dawn of AI. It's published by Moment of Lift Books, an imprint from Melinda French Gates and Flatiron Books. Dr. Fei-Fei Li, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Todd. I'm looking forward to this. Me too. I've been reading your book for the past couple of weeks. As I was just mentioning to you before we started recording, I've read it from cover to cover. And it really is the story of your life from China to the US and from academia to corporate life and back again. But through all of that, it's the story of the dawn of AI as told through your experience as one of the people summoning this new day and then standing awestruck and excited and a little bit concerned about what it's going to mean for humanity. To start us off here, why was this an important book for you to write? Thank you, Todd, for asking that question. Here's the true story. I was, at the beginning of COVID, I was, you know, encouraged to write a book. And my natural instinct is to write a more sciencey book in the sense of let's talk about what AI is, what I have done, but mostly what computer vision and AI is. And I did write a rough first draft with my uh, partner, Alex, a writing partner. And uh, one of my most dearest friend and trusted advisor read my first version and actually sat me down and and said, this is not the book I, I think you should write. Hmm. He said, like, look, Fei-Fei, you are an AI scientist, but in the meantime, you have a journey that so many young people, especially young women and young people of all backgrounds, can really identify with. And... Um, he encouraged me to actually embrace that journey in a more open way and share that journey. And I think he really convinced me because I wanted to write a book that the young women and young people of all walks of life out there can read about AI, can read about a scientist's journey, and also can find their own passion through reading or at least be inspired so that that's why I wrote the book eventually. 
books are a running theme throughout your book. You talk about the books that you read, especially in your native language in China initially, and then you came to the U.S. and one of your teachers, your math teacher, who became a lifelong friend, Mr. Sabella. Yes. One of the ways that you connected with him was by talking about the books that you've read. And frankly, I could tell <laughs> as I was reading your book, and I know you have a writing partner and it's good for you to give credit, but I could tell that you have a literary background in that you've read a lot. <laughs> did, oh, did that? Thank you. Did reading as a kid and your ongoing reading as an adult shape your view of technology? Yes, the short answer is absolutely. And in my book, especially in my early childhood, you notice that、uh, my mother, she's not a scientist. She, she's a much more real, hardcore literature person. I was the the STEM kid that has a genetic mutation, I guess, <laughs> and uh, and uh, I pick up the the more sciencey books. But what it did to me as reading is. Really, two things. One is, of course, reading what you love, and you know Einstein and and all the science books. But it's also the literature books that actually gives me an aperture towards、uh, being a humanist of human conditions, and that also creates or planted seeds in who I am and connects my own human experience with the greater. Community and world out there. So I think reading really served two purposes for me. One is that scientist, you know, that budding scientist, and even ongoing. But the other one is connection to humanity. To that point, you describe the next north star for technology and artificial intelligence as reimagining AI from the ground up as a human-centered practice. This has been something you've addressed over many years, including a TED talk that you gave on the topic. It comes through in a variety of ways in your work. But can you explain what you mean by reimagining AI as a human-centered practice? Yes, Todd. I was saying something that it was a personal transformation for me, and I think it's really important for all of us to recognize is that AI first is a young field, but even It's a few decades, six decades ish、uh, field. At the beginning, this is a niche, technical, almost has its pureness in terms of a scientific curiosity for for me. Right? It was deep and fascinating, but it wasn't it wasn't wide and impacting everybody. So it has that purity. But then, somewhere around ten years ago, or between ten and and.、Um, Twelve years ago, the field just took off, and the technology becomes more and more powerful. That I started to transform and recognize its societal and human impact. And then, when this happens, there is a transformation of the field, going from pure science to something much messier. You know, every time a technology. Is powerful enough to become products, to become applications, to become horizontally impactful to so many people, from the writers and artists to the software engineers to the teenagers using AI-recommended music and video contents to to everybody, to the doctors, to the patients. It is messy. It is very messy, and this is where I think we should take a breath. And recognize this messiness, embrace this me messiness, because coming out of this 
should be a grounded belief that we should do good to people. Technology should do good to people, and we should understand its risks, understand its potentials, and that's what I truly mean. When did you finish this manuscript? Oh God, it's such a blur, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was end of last year. Okay, so ChatGPT 3.5 had just about been released. People's eyes were just beginning to be open to the potential of the new era of generative AI, in particular. Do you think in the past year we've gotten closer or further away as a society to this ideal of human-centered AI? That's a great question. First of all, yes. As soon as I shipped off the book, I was thinking, <laughs> "Wow, I should add another chapter." <laughs> But then you could definitely you know, keep writing this one. <laughs> yes, but in a way, everything I wrote in this book, with or without ChatGPT, is speaking of the same technological. The the profoundness of the technology, is it more human centered? In a way, I actually think yes. And I'm not saying this with a purely rosy lens that just because it's more human centered, it's good yet. But I'll explain why. First of all, ChatGPT is truly the inflection moment of AI, where as a product. It actually awakened everybody about the power of this technology, right? Once you can have a conversation with AI on practically any topic, and be awed by its capability of that conversation, it really hits home in a different way. So, it's already hitting human society in a way that no other AI products and services have done that. So that's human centered. Second, it has truly, truly. Engendered such a deep and wide range of societal conversations about AI, especially the policy world. You know, we,、um, my、uh, colleagues and I, established the first AI institute in our country, looking at both deep tech and as well as policy and ethical practice. And I know that it wasn't in the Consciousness of the policymakers for years, but ChatGPT truly has awakened them. So, from that point of view, it's human-centered because policymakers are a huge part of our society. So, all this is putting more humans into the AI conversation. But we're still in the, in my opinion, in the era of coming to understand this. We're hearing more voices, opinions. There's noise. There's you know,、uh, there's a lot of hyperbole, and I think it's it's a necessary phase. But I'm hopeful that the human centeredness is much more front and center now. One of the things that I like about the book is the detail that you go into about your disillusionment at some stages of your journey, especially in the early days. Of ImageNet, which was your effort with some of your colleagues to, as you put it, allow computers to see, identify what images were, and you had a series of breakthroughs along the way. But very difficult stretch of time for many years. It was fascinating to me that the realization that Amazon Mechanical Turk had come、yes. onto the scene in terms of training the data and identifying people. I loved the nitty gritty that you got into because I think it'll be inspiring to people who are in those troughs of disillusionment themselves right now. What would you say to somebody who's facing 
that type of real opposition, actually. Some of your colleagues were telling you, hey, try something else. Time to move on. Like, how did you persist? Actually, that's the reason I wrote the book. I, I think there are a couple of things. One is, again, my book is a coming of age for a scientist and I'm writing for the young audience or for any audience, but who cares about that journey, right? Second is that scientists or the way science are made is it's mysterious to the public. It's almost like there is a lone genius sitting in the dark corner and for like two seconds, all the light bulbs went on in their mind and then science is made. It's not true. Just like any other thing that's hard in life, you have to grind and uh, it's teamwork. It's both creativity and perseverance. It's grit and passion. And, uh, this is why I uh, deliberately choose to give the kind of details uh, of the journey as this book did. And my message to anyone, especially young people who are going through this phase of their journey, is that um, don't give up. Be resourceful, be creative, be willing to know when your tool is wrong or your first idea, your second idea, your, your 15th idea is wrong. But don't give up that North Star. Don't give up that dream. And uh, you'll persevere if you believe in it and are passionate and, uh, you know, work for it. Up next, the high school teacher who changed Fei-Fei Li's life. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. Before returning to my conversation with Fei-Fei Li, a quick note. I'll be speaking further with Dr. Lee about her new book, The Worlds I See, on Monday evening, November 13th at Town Hall in Seattle. You can see the show notes for details and a link to tickets. Let's return now to our podcast conversation. You had two formative experiences in two different schools you attended. One was in China in your last year of elementary school, if I read correctly, when you overheard the teacher privately scolding a group of boys, telling them that falling behind the girls in academics was unacceptable. And then you had a very different experience your junior year at Parsippany High School in New Jersey with a very tough math teacher named Bob Sabella, who became a lifelong friend of yours. How did these two experiences shape your path in life? Yeah, so uh, Todd, first of all, that um, experience of the kind of comments I overheard as a young girl, I think it's more symbolic of a journey of a woman in technology and in science, even though that moment was early and I wrote it in the book, but frankly, in different forms and shapes, it continued to be an experience. And uh, I think I I was definitely shaped by that experience to the extent of recognizing this is going to be a much more lonely journey, recognizing that there are other girls and women and people of underrepresented background who will be on a lonely journey. So to the extent I can, I want to be there to help rather than to, you know, hinder. 
but it also frankly ignited fire in my belly as well. So I guess uh, I guess that's just part of me, right? When people say no, you can take it as a no, or you can take it as I'll show you I can do it. <laughs> so so that was uh, that. Mr. Sabella and his family from Persephone High School. Again, it was a very deliberate choice that this book is as much of a journey of myself as it is a tribute to the heroes in my life. My mom, um, my parents, um, Mr. Sabella, and many others. And again, I don't know how to even articulate the kind of support and love, compassion, and generosity a teacher like him has for me, for a young immigrant kid, and the kind of profound impact it has to my life. To this day, I remain part of the family, even though he himself passed away, but uh, his wife, Jean Sabella, my children call her aunt, aunt you know, auntie, and uh, his, his kids, um, we are just just family and it's I'm just so grateful honestly the thing I like about it is that he did not go down this path with you by default you had to prove yourself because you first went to him and said hey I didn't do as well on this test as I wanted to what can I do and you were thinking maybe some extra credit and you could go back and, and redo it which is something with my own daughter that I wrestle with like really you can take a test over you know in school today and he said to you Mr. Sabella said to you basically do better next time. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh my God. You know, he is what born in uh, Brooklyn and yeah. uh, a New Jersey teacher. He is tough love. <laughs> and yes. uh, I love him for that. But, you know, as a teenager, yes, I had to earn that. And um, he knows I was competitive. I think as a teacher, you see, now that I, I'm an educator, I know I can see that competitiveness in some of my students. And, and I love that. But he knows that uh, I need to earn that. <laughs> so, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. The other thing that really hits home for me is the work that you did with your parents to buy a dry cleaning place and the translation that you ended up doing. I mean, here you were in some of the most advanced research labs in the country at the various institutions you worked for. And your mom would need you to help translate a dry cleaning order on the phone. And just the fact that you were able to bridge those two worlds, and it's why the title of the book has multiple meanings, The Worlds I See, I think. It made it very human for me and, and very real because I think a lot of people, especially in technology, still have to relate to the other people in their lives. How did that shape your experience and your worldview, those dueling experiences that you had. Yeah, Todd, thanks for, first of all, understanding the title of the book. In, in fact, uh, it is The Many Worlds I See. It is funny. I live in this duality. As a woman technologist in today's AI, I do think my experience is pretty rare. Most of my colleagues are men and kids, when they were kids, they have computers. They didn't have to work in uh, dry cleaners. They're not immigrants in the sense of, you know, starting very early um, in life and trying to 
really survive. Many of them might be immigrants as graduate students in top universities with a comfortable stipend and full scholarship, right? So they they still have their challenges, but it really is different. And uh, I think it gave me a human perspective. When I was building the technology, especially when I was seeing the link between AI and healthcare and also other industry, it is so easy for me to understand people from the other side because as a small business owner for a dry cleaner shop, everything you're trained on is to understand your customers and make sure they're happy. And it really made me understand the struggle of someone as an immigrant, that's myself, as well as the receiving end of a product or service, the, the the customers and users. So when I was working in healthcare with AI or other business at Google, it was second nature to me to try to ground technology into human perspective. So that was helpful. And besides, I live in Silicon Valley. I can tell people I had a startup when I was 19 and it was a dry cleaning <laughs> shop. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was one of the things that you drove home in a different way in your congressional testimony, this focus on humanity and customers by companies and the fact that they need to, as they consider these new forms of AI, not just think about the bottom line, but to think about people do you think that's happening? Are we seeing that right now? There's a lot of lip service, but is it really happening? Yeah, Todd, our society, especially the one we're living in, will always have to have multiple forces that's pulling and pushing each other towards something better. Because if you leave just one stakeholder by themselves, they're going to optimize for what they want. So I recognize bottom line and revenues and profit are important for, for companies. And, and they also serve their employees and employees' families. But if if that's the only dimension, no, it's not enough. And one thing that's good about today's very messy discussion about AI is I think all the voices are coming out. Even a few years ago, we start to hear much more about bias, about privacy, and now we're hearing about human agency. We're hearing about catastrophic risks, whether it's disinformation and democracy, or it's jobs, or it's you know other regulatory measures. So I think it's healthy we're in this stage. If you ask me if it's happening, I can say I'm seeing glimpses of hope, but I also don't think all of us should not feel complacent. We still have to raise these voices. We still have to just fight the good fight. After the break, the AI trade-off that Fei-Fei Li calls the challenge of our time. Another point that you make in the book is that research institutions, publicly funded research institutions, are in many ways better positioned to do this advanced research, this cutting-edge research than companies. There's a fascinating anecdote when you got a call from John Markoff, the New York Times reporter, in the book, and you realized that Google was just about to match what you and one of your colleagues were doing. We can get into that in a second. But it strikes me that there's an imbalance in that because these companies have access and control over these immense fields and data centers of GPUs. 
and I, got, I laughed at the the two NVIDIA GPUs that were used to process some of the work that you did compared to what like Microsoft and OpenAI have. My question is, how do you overcome that imbalance in academia and research when these companies are the ones that are ultimately controlling the raw materials of AI? Yeah, this is actually the challenge of our time, Todd. I think this is a critical question. I cannot overemphasize enough that we have a terrible imbalance right now. The imbalance is not only on the resource front, it's also on the voice, the megaphone, right? Like if you see in the news, the, the policymakers are meeting with business leaders left and right, which is fine. It's good they meet with them, but they also need to hear from academia and public sector. Here is the thing. AI is a very powerful technology. It can help us to actually discover more critical science, cure for cancer, fusion. You know, there's many things. But it also can be used to optimize advertisement placements <laughs> and, and, and revenue. And we want, the public wants the former. Some companies want the latter, but we definitely want both to be healthy in our society. And right now, we only have the companies using AI. We don't have enough resource for the public. On top of that, we are worried about the catastrophic or existential risks of AI. Who has the resource to open the hood and examine what's going on? You need trusted public sector partners. You cannot just completely rely on self-reports of these companies. In order to do that, you need a healthy academia and public sector. Third, and last but not the least, who is benchmarking? Who is assessing? Who is evaluating? Not only evaluating on you know the speed and performance, but also fairness, privacy, hallucination, alignment, all these issues that we are seeing in today's technology. And again, we need public sector and academia's uh, thought leadership in this. So for all these reasons, I think we are really in a bit of a crisis if we overlook public sector at this moment in AI's development. I'm thinking more funding to the National Science Foundation, to the NSF, to fund these research labs. I mean, a lot of the congressional discussion right now is very theoretical and hand-wringing. And why not just a straightforward injection of capital? Now, that's getting into politics, and it's probably going too far. But I'm curious what you think the country could do to support research institutions. Yes, a great question, Todd. When I met with President Biden in June, and then just last month in September, I did a Senate hearing, that's a public hearing, in both cases on behalf of Stanford Human Center AI Institute, I called for a moonshot mentality of capital investment from the uh, government, not only just to um, to uh, uh, funding agencies uh, like NSF, NIH, on AI, but also infrastructure. Right now, there is a bill that's hopefully to be passed in Congress and Senate called the Create AI Act. It'll build over the next six years a research cloud as well as data repository for the American academia and public sector researchers and students and, and educators. 
And this is so necessary if we want to open the hood and understand this technology, if we want to use it to cure cancer, if we want to assess and evaluate, um, if we want to like understand climate changes. So, so that's where we are trying to advocate this important effort and basically the moonshot mentality. Is this part of your work through AI for All? AI4O is a nonprofit I co-founded uh, back in 2015, and that is particularly about educating tomorrow's leaders from all walks of life. We're focusing on high school students. Um, that is more an educational, K-12 educational effort, whereas uh, at Stanford, uh, my institute, uh, Human Center AI Institute, is focused on technology and policy. You spent a couple of years at Google when you were on sabbatical from Stanford, and people might know that in part because they read a New York Times story that quoted from some internal emails that you wrote at the time about something called Project Maven, which was the Pentagon project that used the company's AI to analyze drone surveillance footage. You reference this very briefly in the book, but you don't go into detail. Why was that? Yeah, so um, Todd, here's the thing. First of all, I was not a central player in this particular project because it's a business contract between Google and the government. And when it's a business contract, it's really the business leaders, right? As an engineering, I was leading an engineering team as part of the engineering effort, multiple teams were involved. So, so just truthfully, I didn't have much more to say, but in, I guess you're referring to that chapter. Was it chapter 11? I think <laughs> chapter 11 I in, think the, so. in the AI's uh, industry, uh, coming to industry. I did contextualize Maven as well as a number of AI events yep. around 2017, 2018 as kind of the first wave of the public as well as the technology companies coming to realize this technology is messy. It's not just beautiful algorithms and um, idealistic dreams of creating a thinking machine as Alan Turing was hypothesizing. It's also touching human lives. It's also dealing with values that people have different uh, viewpoints. And I think it was a learning for me as well that a horizontal technology like this, what is its relationship to defense industry? What is its relationship to surveillance? What is its relationship to helping people? I also, in the book, talk about my mom's controversial opinion. You know, she is skeptical of technology. She's even skeptical of me trying to be a human monitor for her health because that took away her dignity and agency, I did not even realize, even as her own and only daughter trying to be that human monitor, she became, you know, resistant to that. So let alone if it's a piece of technology, we're going to have these messy conversations. And that's what, whether it's Maven or my mom's healthcare encounter, or we talked about self-driving car, we talked about image labeling and face recognition, all this is part of that messiness. I have to say, I would never want to cook a meal around your mom. 
<laughs> there's you have a great <laughs> anecdote of the book. Yeah, I think the line was, uh, she doesn't so much clean as she cooks, she cooks as she cleans, right? <laughs> yes. And, but I really came to admire her and especially her resilience as told through the story of your book. Your dad sounds like a real character. And as you say, he sounds like he's a much better fit for the role of grandfather than perhaps he was for the role of father. He's just a real free spirit. That's what I took away from yes. that. Yeah. I think there's a movie here. Have you been approached by any studios yet? Well, first of all, the book is out on November 7th. <laughs> so I don't think anybody has read the book other than well, a few special individuals like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you've got an agent who's pitching it to major Hollywood studios. If they're not, I'm, they should be. Let me say that. I, I really think okay. that there's a movie here. That's my two cents. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Now you get me wonder who should play Fei-Fei. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. I'll leave that to the experts. No, I won't but I, I really enjoyed the book. And I just want to wrap up here by asking you, what is next for you? You've got a long career ahead of you still. Where do you see yourself going? One thing that my journey, especially as an immigrant and a woman in technology, has been, you know, I, I love about my journey is ground zero. I love being ground zero, being a research scientist. I, I'm talking to you from my the office from my lab outside of my office are robots and uh, graduate students working on these robots. And I just came off from, from a research meeting. And that's one ground zero for me. That ground zero is really at the cutting edge of research now. I'm doing mostly through collaborating with my brilliant, brilliant students and uh, collaborators. Another ground zero is going to be people. I feel so adamant and passionate now that AI has entered our society as a powerful technology. The real work is to make sure that people benefit from this and we mitigate the risks. So again, my application area tends to be uh, healthcare. So that ground zero is patient rooms, is working with doctors and also you know, seeing it through my own parents' eyes, the, the, the struggle as patients and what we can do for them. But also ground zero in terms of how do we have a dialogue with people? How do we have dialogue with stakeholders from patients to elderlies to artists who are questioning about AI's pluses and minuses, but also people in the Capitol Hill, people in local governments, people who are thinking about how to set conditions of AI that is beneficial to, to our world. So I'm going to stay in Ground Zero. That's who I am. And uh, that's where the actions and the differences can be made. Dr. Fei-Fei Li, thank you very much for speaking with me. Thank you, Todd. My pleasure. The book is called The Worlds I See, Curiosity, Exploration, and Discovery at the Dawn of AI. It's published by Moment of Lift Books, which is created by Melinda Frenchgates in partnership with Flatiron Books, and it's out November 7th. A quick reminder, I'll be speaking further with Dr. Lee about her book, The Worlds I See, on Monday evening, November 13th at Town Hall in Seattle. You can see the show notes for details and a link to tickets. And be sure to flag me down and say hello if you can make it. It's always fun to meet GeekWire podcast listeners. Thanks for listening. If you're a fan of the show, I'd be grateful if you'd take a few moments to rate and review the GeekWire podcast in your favorite podcast app, if you haven't already. Kurt Milton edited this episode. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. 
We'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.